from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 20. I'll read verses 1 through 6, so that we might see verses 4 through 6 in their larger context. Of course, if there's anything that helps us in the book of Revelation, it is context, much of which we find in Revelation 4 through 6 is aligned with the book of Daniel, chapter 7. I will not read from that if you'd like to go later and examine that glorious passage you might. It speaks of the ruling and reigning of those saints, both deceased and even living. We who are the church of Christ, united with him in his death and resurrection. Revelation chapter 20, I begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, Having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive or should, sorry, he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Thus far the reading of God's words. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning and we would ask that you would give us humility As we endeavor to understand your word, that you would give us patience, even with ourselves. As many of these things require not but one reading, but many readings. That you would give to us by your spirit a discernment. You would give us patience. So that we might rightly divide and apply And live according to your word. Our desire is to be conformed more and more to the image and pattern of Christ himself. Who was made like us in every way yet without sin. That this word might be used by you to approve us for every good work. Lord that you would be pleased with your children. As we sit like Mary at your feet may we listen Become more like you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. My desire as we move through the book of Revelation is not to do what may feel like a series of party tricks or the unraveling of many mysteries and riddles to impress you. In fact, oftentimes I would imagine there is some confusion even at the end of the sermon And I will admit to you the same Uh, for myself. 
that there is even still much mystery as it pertains to the things often spoken of in the book of Revelation. There remains for the saints in particular the great mystery of the day of Christ's return. Yet as I said last week, I am fully persuaded that that day is not near. But Christ will through his church rule and reign until the work of the great commission is fulfilled and the glory of Christ and the conquering of nations and tribes and tongues and kings is evidence not at the end, but unto the end, through the ruling and reigning of the church. Not only this, but last week in Revelation chapter 20, my contention was, what I argued for, is that the events of Revelation 20 come on the heels of Revelation chapter 19 in terms of chronology. And so, after Christ defeats that great beast, and the armies of those who lent that beast strength, after that beast is defeated, Satan is bound. My contention was that that happened in 70 AD. Satan, even now, being imprisoned, most likely, in earth itself, rules through his emissaries, the demons. And the mission of the work of church, even as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that Christ would be victorious through the proclamation of the gospel, through the administration of the sacraments, through the discipleship of the saints, unto the casting out of every demon, that great enemy, death, the last enemy, which Christ himself will take care of at the end of all things, at the end of that 1,000 years that we call the millennium, which I also put forth to you is not a literal 1,000 years, but is that time of Christ's rule and reign between his first and second coming, even with the saints both dead and even we who are spiritually united to Christ Jesus in heaven. Easy stuff, right? (laughs) Like it is with all things, repetition. If you find yourself still lost, if you find yourself still unable to sort of penetrate the mystery, read it again, and then again, and again, and again. A scripture is one of those rocks, as an elder once told me, that is at times slow to yield its jewel. And your responsibility, interpreter of Scripture, is to stay on the rock until it gives up its jewel. Be persistent. Be faithful. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 continue with the theme of the millennium and another characteristic of what is found as it relates to the rule and reign of the saints with Christ. But it then brings in this idea, this reality of a first and second resurrection. That is what my focus is this morning, and I will do so under two headings, the first and second resurrection, and then secondly, thrones, judgment, and glory, the first and second resurrection, and then thrones, judgment, and glory. Now, before we get into this, though I speak with some measure of confidence, I understand 
also with an air and position of humility, that there is much disagreement as to the who, what, when, where, and why of the millennial reign. Nevertheless, as a pastor, it is not my responsibility as a kind of lecture to tell you all of the positions, but to endeavor to persuade you as to what I think is the correct position held with humility and then to take that position that I believe to be the one that the Bible teaches and to apply it to you. Now, I also do so today knowing that what I am about to say may be new, though it is not novel. It may be new to you, but it is not novel in the history of the church and was predominantly the majority position, especially in the early church. Now, I know that it falls under the category of that eschatological position that is often called post-millennialism, but even within that category, not all men agree. As I said last week, if we take the three primary eschatological positions, pre-mill, mill and post-mill, and we look at them like the one-foot markers on a yardstick, there are as many variations between them, like the hash marks, whether it's inches or eighth of inches, it can get very minute in terms of detail and disagreement. So take all of this, take all of this to heart as I begin. Now, this morning I want to focus first on the first and second resurrection, and I want to endeavor to explain when the first resurrection was, when the second resurrection is, who takes part in them, and what they actually are. So let's move through this. Who here in Revelation chapter 4, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished this is the first resurrection. So what is the first resurrection that is mentioned in verse 5 and immediately following in verse 6? Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Now, before we continue, what we need to see is the end of verse 5, this is the first resurrection, comes at a lengthy parenthetical section. When we read at the end of verse 5, this is the first resurrection, it speaks of the glory of those mentioned in verse 4. Those who sat upon thrones are those who take part in the first resurrection. That answers in some fashion, though we'll look at it in greater detail in just a moment, the who. The who of the first resurrection must include those who are in Christ Jesus ruling and reigning with him. We will narrow that in a moment. It is exclusively something that happens to those who are united to Christ Jesus. We see this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Christ being the firstborn of the dead. And because of Christ's resurrection, he then makes it possible for all who have been given to him by the Father 
This is what we often may call, though there is some division as to whether we should speak of something called the covenant of redemption. We know that the Father, who is the one who elects, he determines the number of saints. The way in which that election takes place and is effectual is that he says to the Son, these are your children, I give them to you. These are, this is your bride, and Christ redeems them. And Christ died for those whom the Father gave him. These are the ones, these are the ones, saints, first category, large category, who are raised. It is those who are saints who experience the resurrection. They are also those who sit upon thrones. We know that that number here includes those Excuse me. who have suffered for Christ, who were beheaded, and did not give up the name of Christ. They are sealed. They not only live out faithfulness, but we read here that they are also those elect. Now, more particularly, as it relates to what the first resurrection is, though it is Christians, this word resurrection here is not synonymous with those who are regenerate. What John is not writing about is those who are regenerate in the time between Christ's first and second coming. Now, guys like Ken Gentry and others hold to this position, and they have some strong arguments. There are many problems with their arguments, and though there are times where the scripture speaks of resurrection as the fruit of regeneration, which is built upon this concept of Christ being firstborn, it is not language that is really used in the Old Testament when it pertains to the concept of regeneration. Those saints in the Old Testament were regenerate despite this first resurrection which has taken place at a point in time after the regeneration of many Old Testament saints. In fact, they looked forward to the resurrection of the dead. Not only this, but as it relates to what these saints are experiencing here, knowing that it happens only to Christians, it is not merely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard to say that, Because the significance of Christ's own resurrection cannot be overemphasized. Without Christ's firstborn resurrection, there can be no resurrection of the dead. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, then none of us are raised. And our faith is futile and in vain. But John is not speaking of regeneration here. He is not speaking of the first resurrection as the resurrection of Christ. He is speaking of another resurrection. Now, there is no disagreement in all of the millennial positions about the existence of the first resurrection. And in relationship to that, what I have said already, that the first resurrection applies to the saints mentioned in verse 4, but rather its timing. Now, Let me move on and be even more specific about whom John is speaking about. 
And I want to do so by looking at death and resurrection within the covenantal structure that God has established with men, leading up to and including Revelation 20. So thus far, what we have seen is that John is writing about two different resurrections. He is expressing that as it relates to the first resurrection, it certainly includes those who have died for Christ. Now let's look at the nature and the full extent of who partakes in the first, in the first resurrection. Now throughout Scripture, as we take it and we do, let's call it a biblical theological study, a biblical theological study is looking at certain themes in the Bible and how they grow, and if I can use this word, evolve, how our understanding of certain theological concepts expands through the unfolding of revelation. Perhaps some of you have played those games. Uh, There's a game that our kids will often play on this Google device that we have at home, and someone begins, you have a theme, and you have to guess what it is, and someone begins to sketch it digitally, with a pencil, and as the picture becomes clearer and clearer, you lose points as to how long it takes you to guess what it is. And so they start off, and it says animal, and you see that it has a number of spaces. And as they begin to draw, you go, ooh, that looks like a a sloth, and it turns out to be a giraffe. Well, if you wait to the very end to guess it, you get fewer points. In similar fashion, not the point stuff, (laughs) Scripture is sort of filling out over time to the point we get to the book of Revelation. And what John is really doing is he is sort of putting the the finishing touches on the whole tapestry, the picture, the painting of God's revelation. What John is not doing is making it more obscure. Now, why do theologians endeavor to make it more obscure? Well, either they don't know the text and they can't interpret it rightly and even more nefariously like so many teachers do when it comes to Scripture, they are endeavoring to keep from the listener things that would benefit them that keep the listener dependent upon the one who is teaching. This happens all the time. But what does Revelation mean? Making something Clear. And so at the very heart, if exegesis doesn't make it clear, or at least is endeavoring to make it clear, though sometimes perhaps I fail in that task, and I would admit I've probably done that more than once this series, then we've missed it. And we miss on the practical benefit of Scripture for which it is given. Now, If we are to understand Revelation chapter 20, we ought to really understand Daniel chapter 7, but we really need to see the nature in which God has revealed himself through Scripture. And one of the things that we find as a theme in Scripture is life from death. Life from death. Even in creation, we don't see life from death, but we do see life from nothing. That you and I, men and women... Oh, the whole human race and all of creation, was br- we were brought forth from nothing. And even we people, man was brought forth from the dirt and woman from the side of the man. From non-life, there is life. 
We see this theme again with Noah and the flood. You will see this develop. Even as I use these examples, God was going to bring complete judgment upon the world, yet from that condemnation, that sentence of death, Noah and his flood were brought from it, out of it, through it, to a mountain, to the altar, to worship. Life from death. We see Isaac and the ram. That as God makes a promise to Abraham to build a nation, to bless the world with a holy race, The first testimony of that is what? Saving the father of that nation from death and bringing life from death. The scripture says that Abraham received his son as though it was from death. Hebrews 11, 19. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. How was Isaac received? The death of a ram was placed upon the altar in his stead. And so we bring in another theme as it relates to life from death. How is life brought from death? Something must die in the place of those who live. This is how you learn the gospel. You see it unfolding. And then we see Israel and the Red Sea and the Jordan. While one nation is being judged, Israel is coming up out of that very thing that God used to judge Egypt. This is why we speak of the Red Sea and the Jordan as a kind of baptism. Our lives are hidden in Christ because he has redeemed us life from death. We see this with Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, Christ speaks of his own ministry as that which which reflects the sign of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 45. What happened with Jonah? He died. You don't live in the belly of a fish for three days. You die. And then what? God raised him from the dead and sent him to Nineveh to preach. That's the sign of Jonah. Life from death. We see resurrection of holy men at the time of Christ's resurrection. In Matthew chapter 27. In fact, why don't I go there to read it? Because some of you may not be familiar with this event. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now the tearing of the curtain of the temple was not just symbolic of access, but it is also symbolic, that access that leads to grace, it is also symbolic of access that brings judgment This is important when we see what I'm going to make as a point next. Verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Who are these? These were Old Testament saints. Holy men. Followers of Christ, those who believe in the promise that was yet to come. And here they are raised from the dead at the time of Christ revealing access of mercy and judgment. What is happening here at the temple is a preview of what will come in AD 70, the destruction of the temple. So here in AD 30, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 through 53. Now we're building, we're building upon this theme. 
And so by the time of Christ's own resurrection, there were some who were raised at the same time. Those saints who had gone before. So what then do we do as it relates to the first resurrection? Let me say this. In the same way that there are two bindings or defeats of Satan. As I have said already, I contend that the binding of Satan or the casting out of Satan from the heavenly places that took place in AD 30 that results in the raising of the dead of Old Testament saints, some, that the binding of Satan in 70 AD also has a corresponding resurrection. That those Old Testament saints who died before AD 70 were raised on that day. That in the same day Jerusalem was judged because of their unbelief, like Egypt in the Red Sea, some were made alive in that very same day. So let me try. I feel like we need to have another Sunday school class. What? With three exclamation points. Christ's first resurrection that corresponds to and relates to the resurrection of some who went into Jerusalem and talked to people. Well, hey, how are you doing? Where'd you come from? Well, I've been sleeping for a little while. Feel good? Feel fresh? In what bodies were they raised in? The self-same bodies in which they died. In what state were they raised? I would contend that it was a glorified state. Because it takes place in correspondence with the resurrection. Which is unlike Lazarus's resurrection, which took place prior to Christ's resurrection. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 24 as we continue to build. If this were a Sunday school lesson, this is where I'd pause and I would say, are there any clarifying questions? I want to anticipate some of those, I think. I'm trying. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Here is my contention. Matthew 24 is not a future event. It is an event that took place at 70 AD, when Christ comes against the city of Jerusalem. But not only does he judge one wayward nation, but he raises another faithful nation in that same day. Now, I imagine this is where I lose some of you, and I'm okay with that. I do not have a problem with people disagreeing, and there are many faithful Students, scholars, pastors, theologians who disagree. But if we may remain within the context, not only of what I've already preached, but the text itself, it follows one after the other. That this resurrection is not figurative, it is not future, it is not symbolic. This first resurrection 
that the saints of God enjoyed, those who were martyred, and then the question is, are there any in additional? Now to this, again, there is some dispute. I would contend that I believe that this resurrection in AD 70 includes the entirety of the Old Testament church. In fact, it is therefore possible that when Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, Paul is writing to the New Testament church, and he says, and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and, re- and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Perhaps Paul is speaking not of a future resurrection in which those who are dead after Christ's coming, after AD 70, will be raised, having turned to dust, no doubt, and those who were living at the time of Christ's second coming will follow them, but in fact, maybe Paul is speaking of the Old Testament saints who have gone before, who are even now bodily, perfected in righteousness, enjoying the fruits of the new creation. That is my contingent. That there are two resurrections. The first resurrection has taken place in AD 70. And it is associated with the binding of Satan, the conquering of Jerusalem, and a full raising from the dead. Those who have died in Christ, who died before 70 AD. Now what of those who have not? Well, those who died after AD 70, after the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, we too are in heaven. But we are not, obviously, bodily in heaven. Our bodies are here on earth. But inasmuch as we are united to Christ Jesus, we are there. Now, let me speak to this second resurrection. Because I'm running out of time. (laughs) The second resurrection is that which is to come. In fact, last Sunday night, we read of the second resurrection. And the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly speaks of it. What are we to believe concerning the resurrection? We are to believe that at the last day, we are not there. We are in the last days. We are not at the last day. There shall be a general resurrection of the dead. That is whom we read of in verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. It speaks not only of believers, but unbelievers who await the final second Resurrection. When all that are found alive shall in a moment be changed, and the selfsame bodies of the dead which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up by the power of Christ. The bodies of the just by the Spirit of Christ, and by virtue of his resurrection as their head, shall be raised in power, spiritual, incorruptible, and made like his glorious body. And the bodies of the wicked shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. So concerning Christ in the end of these thousand years, he now reigns in glory. He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. Concerning men, 
We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And what greater proof is to the church that awaits the resurrection than the knowledge that all of those who died in Christ are even now glorified and raised with him. And we see them. This is who we see. And so when the martyrs are crying out, they're not crying out, Lord, when will we get our bodies? What the martyrs are crying out for is, when will you bring wrath against Jerusalem? And then in AD 70, at that time, there is a glorification of the Old Covenant Church, the Old Testament Church. So what I am saying is that we live between the two great resurrections. The second greater than the first. The first greater than that one that even took place in AD 30. And they are both testimonies of the faithfulness of God. And that leads me then to my second point. This is probably the latest in a sermon that I've ever arrived at my second point. But let me quickly do a little bit of application here. Now, in this time that we call the millennial reign, we see thrones in heaven. It speaks of them in plurality. And it speaks of the saints as those who sit upon the thrones. Those thrones even now are occupied by the glorified Old Testament saints who watch, who watch through that crystal sea. We see through a glass darkly the conduct of heaven. This is all we know of it, are the apocalyptic sections of Scripture. But when we get to heaven, we see clearly what God is doing on earth. And the hosts of heaven watch as Christ unfolds his plan of salvation in their glorified bodies, with redeemed eyes. Now not your father and mother. They await the resurrection. But those who died prior to the judgment of Jerusalem, the Old Testament saints, even in glory, bear witness to the glory that the new covenant, the New Testament church, will one day experience. And not only those who have gone before us, but the regenerate reign from earth because they are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and therefore have real authority to advance the kingdom. But the resurrected saints also reign with Christ in the heavenlies for the full duration of the millennium. This is uh, Reverend Kaiser who says that. So we must wait the full resurrection. But despite having to wait for the resurrection, the glorification of our bodies, we are present, which is what gives the church its power. We are even now royal priests seated with Christ in heavenly places. And one day we will be united to that church that has come before. So let's bring it home. Let me say first that we are one body with the Old Testament saints. That even now they are raised with Christ. They have been delivered from judgment. They are perfected in glory, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. What does this perfection consist of? Perfection. The completion of the order of salvation. We see this in Hebrew 12, as I just said. How comforting and inspiring this should be for us that they have received the prize for which they ran, for which they died. They do not await, but they have. Not only that, but Christ came for our bodies as well as our souls. 
And if Christ came to raise our bodies and not just our souls, what should the ministry of the church look like? It should be a ministry to body and soul. The secular church wants to care for the body and forsake the soul, right? It's just sort of philanthropic. We're not going to impose our doctrine, but we will feed your stomach. But to what end? Neither do we reflect merely on the soul as though we are some sort of Gnostic disembodied entities. Beware those pastors that over-spiritualize application, whether it relates to the law of God or even revelation itself. For we are body and soul. Both are objects of the scorn of Satan, but the affection and the objects of Christ's redemption. He has both in his sights. So in the new heavens and the new earth will not be these sort of disembodied souls sort of floating on clouds. We will be of the stuff of earth, laboring to do extraordinary things unimpeded by sin. And not only that, but whatever happens to us in our fight for the glory of Christ and the building of his kingdom, even if we are put to death, even if the king of England scatters our ashes in the Thames River and no one can locate it, every single one of those molecules of human DNA Christ takes and he will raise up in the last day. And this is glorious. This should be glorious to us. Because what it means is that for those who confess the name of Christ, not only is nothing wasted, but all will be redeemed and used for the building and the glory of Christ's kingdom. And will be counted even our own reward in the wearing of the crowns that will one day be given to the saints. We will one day be whole. And the way I know that is that the prophets who were killed for the sake of the proclamation of the word of God that Israel put to death, are even now in glory raised whole. And their wholeness speaks not only of the redeeming work of Christ as he comes forth from the temple, but also the divine justice of Christ as he comes forth from the temple against those who put the prophets to death. Christ is going to, even as he has, fulfill his great work of redemption. Now, I want to ask, are there any questions? (laughs) But I really need to say, amen. Let's pray. Lord, even now.